Welcome to another episode of Rad Talk with Tracy. I'm your host, Tracy Poffenroth Prado. This podcast is all about reactive attachment disorder, or RAD. I'm going to be talking with parents who will be sharing their experiences of what it's like raising a child with RAD. It gets raw and it gets real. I'm also going to be talking with experts from different areas who will be sharing information about RAD, resources, and support. I'm glad you're here. Let's get started. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Rad Talk with Tracy. Today, we have a really hard and heartfelt story. I have Kayla with us today, and she's going to be sharing her story about adoption, about relinquishing, uh, and everything in between. Uh, It may be hard to hear, but these are the stories that a lot of us parents go through. And I think it's really important to, to hear exactly that, exactly what, what we go through. So Kayla, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad you're here. And we were talking before the show started and you were giving me little bits and pieces and it really even just started bringing tears to my eyes and goosebumps because I don't have your story, but I think our listeners out there and myself, we have similar stories or there's people that do. And I think yours, yours is one that we maybe haven't heard. And I think it's really important that we do. So thanks for being willing I'm a big fan of your podcast. So thank you. Thanks so much. Well, so you're a rad mom and we were talking about you adopted two kiddos from foster care. Yes. Um, Yep. We had um, something I had always wanted to do. Um, Our story is a little different in how we came to adoption in that it's something I decided I wanted to adopt older kids from foster care when I was in elementary school. Wow. (laughs) And it's just, um, I, you know, my parents were an ex nun and priest who became psychologists and we were raised to be do-gooders. And so like when I (laughs) discovered there were children in the world who didn't have homes, I was like, that's what I want to do. You know, had a, a, I've, have a successful, busy career. So there were points where I didn't know if that was going to happen, but um, yeah, I, you know, eventually got my husband on board and we were in a place in our lives where we thought we had the space and time and energy to devote to that. And finally, finally uh, pursued that. And yes, uh, our kids moved in with us uh, in 2015 when they were nine and a half and 13 and a half, they're full siblings. They're full siblings. And you were their second adoption. Interesting. So you were the second adoption. So at the time, so this was back in 2015. What did second adoption mean to you? (laughs) Because I'm sure today (laughs) as a rad parent, that would be a red flag. And I'm always just curious. Some of us are definitely more aware than others. I was not one of the most aware ones. (laughs) So I'm just curious, what did that second adoption mean? Or did it mean anything? I think because of the circumstances, we didn't, um, you know, it wasn't that it was a failed adoption. It was, I'll just kind of go back and start at the beginning. So our kids, when we 
when we were starting to pursue adoption, like you and your podcast talked about, there's things, you know, you can handle and, you know, you right. can't handle and you can't make this, they want to know. And, you know, the kids on the sites are listed on like adopt us kids. They're listed as mild, moderate or severe mm-hmm. and, you know, and whether <laughs> who puts that in, is it honest, who knows, you know, but you kind of make this, this idea of what you think you can handle. And you talk to fellow adoptive parents and they tell you horror stories, but I'm, I'm type A and I've never failed at anything. So I thought, okay, I, I'm going to do this better than they did it. I'm going to pick kids that I can handle and, you know, we're going to avoid, although their kids have been through 20 foster homes, that's a sign. We're not going to do that. You know, so I thought I could be, be, that won't happen to us. That won't happen to us. Yeah, exactly. And no matter how prepared you think you are, You are not prepared. You are not going to know what it's like until you are in the trenches doing it. And so these kids had been in the same foster home for two years after their second adoption. And there was so much of their history that we did not know. And that was, you know, what ended up being our undoing. So I have a quick question for you. So they came from foster care. So were they with a, a foster adopt family and then went back to foster care or did they stay with that family and then come directly to you? How did that flow? Yeah, so, um, their, their story, as we eventually found out, and we did not know this story when we adopted them, but their story that we eventually found out was that their parents were drug dealers and drug addicts and they were taken from them when they were two and six. And they had, um, our son had meth, cocaine, and marijuana in his urine at age two. And um, our daughter had cocaine in her urine at age six. So they were taken from their birth parents at that age. They were then put into foster care briefly and adopted by their maternal aunt who had adopted their mother's first child, who was a half-sister of theirs. She adopted them. Um, moved with them from California to Nevada and was physically and emotionally abusive to them. So she had them until they were seven and 11. She beat our daughter with a crowbar over a math grade. And our daughter ran to the neighbors and said, save me basically. And was taken to the hospital for her injuries. And then they were taken from the aunt. So that's why I say like, you don't view that failed adoption as anything to do with the kid's behavior because it was highly abusive. I just, my body is full of goosebumps and how just to stop for a minute and think how, right. How sad that is. Yeah. But when the police went in there, they found broomsticks with, with the kids' names on them. And so it was very bad situation. It was one of those things where they had pulled my daughter out of school to homeschool her so she could be beat without anybody seeing or noticing, you know. So very bad circumstance. And then they were um, put into a foster home locally. And that foster home, they that's what they do. They're foster parents. They're older. They told us they would have adopted her, but not our son. Okay. So the kids were with them for two years. I don't know why it took so long for them to be put on the websites for adoption. Right. Maybe they were hoping that foster family would change their mind and adopt them because parent, you know, the parental rights of the aunt were terminated immediately because 
Yeah. So, thank God. Yeah. So they were with that foster family for two years. During that time, they did not, Nevada never asked California for their records. So when we viewed their records, they only had two years worth of records. And it was the wow. two years that they were with that foster family. They had no idea why they were taken from their birth parents. They had no idea of the in utero exposures, the after utero exposures. They never bothered. Wow. And of course, they could have just asked because our daughter knew their names. She knew their original names. She knew their parents' names. She knew all that. So they could have just asked. California because at this time, she was about nine and a half. So, but yeah, by the time. She went into foster care. She was 11 okay. and she had been taken from her parents, her birth parents when she was six, but had some visitation after okay. that. Plus it was a, it was a in-family kinship adoption. So she knew their names and everything. So sure. it, have been right. it was all family. Yeah. That's part of how DFS fails us is they don't want to give you all the information. They don't care if they have all the information. They just want to get these kids off their books. Yeah. So, you know, and then the kids, were briefly in therapy, but the foster mom pulled them out. She thought they only needed Jesus. That was it. So they had no therapy. They had no psychiatry. They had, our son qualified for an IEP, but they never pursued it. I was it, just so going to ask it. about that, actually, if, if during those two he years. Was failing school, yeah. He was failing school. No IP, just. No therapy. So they weren't getting, it wasn't a bad foster home, but they weren't getting. Their needs the met. they needed. Also, because of that, there were no, they had never had psychological evaluations. So again, system failure. Never. So never. The the foster mom wanted to pull them out of therapy and DFS just let her do whatever she wanted with them. So they were not getting care. They had never had psychological evaluations. We didn't have their early history. So it's like we were going in blind. So here's an interesting fact too. I mean, you think when, if I change doctors, my records get transferred. It's so interesting that from state to state that didn't go through just And I think that there are so many people in these systems with such well-meaning intentions, but, and I'm glad you're sharing this side of it so we can see what happens when these things aren't done and when, um, you know, protocol isn't followed and just how that doesn't protect families. It doesn't protect the children. I mean, this is just a shit show. Yeah, totally. It's a complete failure. And it's like, if the system wants adoptions to be successful, you have to give parents the correct information, adoptive parents and the correct support. And we're, you know, like I said, from beginning to end, from our DFS here to the DFS there, there, that is not what they want. They want these kids off their books. They want someone to sign the dotted line so that it's their problem. And I know that I'm not criticizing the social workers. I know they, many of them have wonderful intentions. They're just overworked. They are overburdened. They, yeah. And there's a lot of kids in there. And, and I think what you're doing though, is just pointing out what you're doing is pointing out the system, the operations, that piece of it. And I think it's fantastic to bring awareness to it uh, because that's how we make change. If we don't see it and we don't acknowledge it and it's not out there, I think it's very brave what you're doing and being honest because this is how change is made. This is how change. Thank you. Yeah. I I really, really feel we need reform and it's not to anyone's benefit to have happen what we've had. It's not to the benefit. Yeah. And you don't want this to happen to other families. 
which it yeah. is. So, so your kids were not getting therapy. They were not getting the services that they needed. So we, um, you know, we were told, of course, the little bit you're told about them. And they said, you can't view their records till you come out here and view them physically in our DFS office. And you don't get copies of them or anything. So like every state does it differently, but that's how they do it. So, you know, we were matched with the kids. We started doing Skype calls with them and everything. And a couple months later, scheduled to drive out there to see them, visit them and to view the records. So at this point, you know, they've already been told these are your future adoptive parents, you know, all that. So we drive out there and the file was just, you know, super thin, just a few pages because they had never asked for those other records. They weren't in treatment. You know what I I mean? So it's like, you're, I'm thinking they've been in the same foster home for two years. They're not on medication. They don't have any crazy diagnoses. Like this seems like. And if they did, they would have this information. So we don't need to worry. Right. Right. So, you know, we meet them. We have a nice fun weekend with them. They come out and visit us for a few days and we do fun things and then they move in and <laughs> we go get them and they're, you know, a couple States away. We adopted from a couple States okay. away. So we go get them from the other state. We drive the two days back. It was August 1st. So it was about a month before school was going to start. I took FMLA so I could be with them. And, um, what was that drive back? Like, just curious, you were saying it was two days. What was the drive like? We had seen from our son's school records that that they suspected ADHD and that's why he would qualify for an IEP. And so he was bouncing off right. the walls, just okay. bouncing off the, the walls of the car. <laughs> <laughs> and our, our daughter was just super quiet and withdrawn. Okay. And he was bouncing off the walls, torturing everyone, just being a complete spaz right. and trying to annoy everyone. Okay. Um, and I thought that's it's nerves. It's ADHD. This is a big change. Yeah. So then he gets back and, you know, there was not a honeymoon period. So he started having like 10 meltdowns a day immediately. And it was just, you ask him to do anything. It's a meltdown. Mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely. (laughs) And, you know, at that time, you're, you know, I, I had heard of RAD, but I had associated RAD with kids from like Romanian orphanages who, you know, just rocked themselves in their cribs and like recoiled at touch. Right. And that was all mm-hmm. I knew of RAD. There's, there wasn't a big discussion of it in our foster care training or anything. Right. So I didn't know the nuances. He was extremely clingy. So I thought, no rad because clingy. Yeah. He wants to like, don't like touch, you know? And so I didn't even think rad at all. I just thought uh, he's stressed out. It's a new place. Um, You know? Yeah. It's going to get better, but of course, immediately overwhelming and exhausting. No kidding. (laughs) No kidding. Yeah. From the minute you got in the car, boom on it's on. You know, I had read about, you know, connected parenting Mm -hmm. was trying that. And it was like, that was just a complete and utter no-go with him. It's like, he didn't want to talk about what had happened or what he differently or like do a redo. There was like, (laughs) no, that was happening. So yeah, he wouldn't go to sleep. He would, you know, and 
you know, school started and immediately the issues at school. He's not one of those rad kids that does good at school. Like it was nonstop calls and emails from the school. Wow. And, you know, we had started him in therapy right away. And then, you know, she suggested medication and started him on different, trying 80 different ADHD medications, you know, and we didn't get the rad diagnosis until he was 14. So how many years was that? It, it wasn't until he was 14 that we, that we got that rad diagnosis. And I'm hearing that you're just living in chaos from every moment, right? From the minute you wake up chaos, because even when he's at school, you're hearing about it. It's just chaos everywhere all day long. Okay. And you know, that it took us a while to to catch on to he was very smart and wily so it took us a long time to catch on to the fact that he was stealing that he was up all night going through our entire house including every drawer of my bedroom and like you know what I mean like he went through my drawer he you know stole my wedding ring he um you know just went through he would eat all the sweets at night while Mm -hmm. everyone slept yeah And yeah, and he would steal money out of our wallets all the time. And we didn't really catch on to that till we caught him red handed and, you know, lying constantly, constant arguing, constant defiance, constant attitude. And with his affection, it was on his terms. So what I came to call it was he weaponized hugs. Mm. So you would ask him to do something and he would stand in front of you and glare at you and say, give me a hug. I'm not going to do whatever you ask me till you give me this hug I've demanded. So it was on his terms, but I thought, again, I'm thinking rad. They don't want any affection. You know, I didn't even, why would he ask for a hug? Yeah. 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 And you know, they're, the diagnoses are piling up. It's, you know, it's ADHD, it's oppositional defiance, it's, you know, anxiety, it's PTSD, it's depression, it's, um, you know, mixed conduct mood, you know, it's like all the diagnoses. So to tease that apart a little bit, we've got therapy, we've got school, we've got home. Was therapy helpful? Not at all, because we didn't know Again, we didn't know we had rad and we didn't, so we didn't know what to look for in a therapist for attachment issues, which is dumb because every, you know, now I think every kid who's adopted has some form of attachment issue and they need to teach you about that. And (laughs) they need, they need to help you find an appropriate provider in your area for attachment. Well, and not only did you not know about rad, but it sounds like your therapist was not rad informed. Not at all. So she treated him, you know, like anxiety, depression, you know, sharing your feelings, you know, so he manipulated the heck Mm. out of her. Yeah. So she would call us in, oh, he's not happy with your rules. And I'm trying to teach him to advocate for, you know, um, for himself. And so these rules are really frustrating him. So a lot of triangulation. Yeah. Totally. And not supporting the family. And Yeah. So he got, we've got him an IEP in school, you know, so we're doing all these things, tutoring, all the stuff we think, right. throw resources. And then, you know, meanwhile, you're reading every parenting book there is and like, oh, we should try the Kasdan method. We should try this. You know, you're trying every method. Yes, I know. <laughs> Don't you feel like, you know, every parenting book and method out there? Right? You're trying, you know, and I definitely, like I said, I'm one of these people I never really failed at something before. So I'm like, I can fix this. I'm a fixer. 
I can find the right parenting method, the yeah. right resources, and wild, you know, they're pushing all your buttons. So you're not being the parent you want to be, you're being cranky, you're being snappy. And so I went to therapy for myself, which was the best thing I ever right. did, you know, but my husband and I both went into therapy to like try yes. to not be reactive. And, you know, if you read my journals from those first few years, it's like, I think it's a hundred percent me. If I could just be the best parent, then we could fix it. Gotcha. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if I could do the, it right. That's a really powerful statement. And something for people to think about is you felt like you needed to fix it. It was up to you and it wasn't being fixed because of you. Right. So if you read my journals, I'm doing affirmations. I'm like, I'm just going to be this like mellow master parent. And like, right. I'm never going to, I'm always going to react perfectly. Right. And then, you know. so my brain again, is just going to point out just for listeners that we've got therapy, not working, not the right th therapist or not a rat informed therapist. Again, that's harming the family now, right? Because we're feeding all that school. He's racking up diagnoses. So the school's trying to offer support, the IEPs, all the supports that's not working. You as a parent are doing the same thing. You're researching every program, everything that could possibly help this kid. And at the heart of it all. So these other areas are not able to support your child. And here's the parent feeling still that it's up to them. And if all of these other places can't support your child, why do we think that we can, right? That's just, and I know there's a lot that comes with that. There's a lot wrapped in it, in it. We're parents. That's a parent mentality. That's what we do. Type A, blah, blah, blah. But that's at the heart of all of this. And I just want to point that out because we lose sight of that. I think when you're the parent in this, that's exactly what we're doing is we want to help our children. We want them to get better. We want our lives to get better. We want to make everything a happy, create a happy family and forgetting that, you know, it's not failure and it's not possible for us and only us to help these kids. And just pointing out the therapist wasn't able to do it. The school supports were not working. So to take that pressure off of parents and just offer that perspective and shine that light so that, you know, you're not crazy and this isn't all up to you. Yes. So true because I, you know, we were just regular people. We're not therapists. We are not, uh, we were not therapeutic foster parents. We had never fostered before. Like we were just normal yeah. people. We are not experts in any way, shape or form. And, you know, even experts have a hard time with these. Very kids. true. Yeah. <laughs> so just average normal people, yeah. you're setting them up for failure yeah. by just throwing them into this with nothing. Right. So. Right. So yeah, we tried, 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 tried everything, you know, and you, you know, you and your husband talked about it when you told your story, but it's like, you're just in survival mode. You're just trying to get through the next yeah, day. Or the next <laughs> moment, right? You're always yeah. anticipating minute by minute. Yeah. And you're right. We don't have energy for anything no. that you, you have energy for. So, you know, no more hobbies, no more working out, no more going out with friends, right. no more date nights, no more vacations. Like, oh, you try vacations, but they're, <laughs> you know, like everything. And our parents, you know, friends would call up, oh, you want to, you know, do X, Y, or Z. It's like, 
oh my gosh, now like I can't. I was just gonna say, Kayla, when you did get a moment, and I know that they're rare, did you want to do any of those things? No, oh, because you just don't have the exactly. energy. Like there's no energy yeah. for that, and so you just. You know, I, I gained weight mm-hmm. or health suffered. I didn't care what I looked like. Like I go to the grocery store in my flannel pajamas and we're in a small town. So you're going to see somebody, you know, <laughs> right. like, I yeah, don't that sense of pride, whatever out the window. Right. I'm, I'm just holding on here. People. Yeah. Cause you know, that's cool. I know they thought I was a raving lunatic. I'm like, I don't care. I just don't right. care. I don't care think of me. I don't care what I look like. You really do hit that point, don't you, though? Because you're just so tore up and worn down at some point. I really do think we all hit that point. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where we were. We were muddling through. We were trying to, you know, um, survive solutions. And in eighth grade, Right after we got that rad diagnosis. So when we got the rad diagnosis, his psychiatrist suggested, you know, I think he may have rad. And I talked to his new therapist, we'd switched therapists. And she was like, oh, yeah, I fully agree with that. And then um, started reading up on rad and was like, hello. Yeah, right. The angels are singing. Hello. (laughs) This is it. and, you know, realizing that, yeah, he, he just because he demanded hugs didn't mean he didn't have rash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know, you know, they don't have to have it. He's not violent. Um, and so that's like, you know, that they don't have to have every single checklist no. item to ratty. Everything else fit him. And that just made so much sense. Finally. How did that feel um, for you? In that moment, just realizing, okay, we've got a name for this and reading about it and it making sense. What did that do for you? Yes, it just feels, and then just like, you know, you join the forums, you see what other ad parents are saying, and you just feel finally like you're not crazy. Right. Right. <laughs> well, it's a relief, right? A relief. Yeah. yeah. Because, yeah, other, you know, he is very, very charming. So other people like our friends, extended family, they didn't no, see it. No, you know, they, so. And Kayla, um, you adopted two kids. So your son is the one that has rad reactive attachment disorder. What about your daughter? Just to kind of pull aside and, and see what's happening there before we go on. So our daughter is somewhat the glass child mm. in that she if you, if you read The Primal Wound, which I recommend yes. everyone read, yes, she talks about um, how if you adopt siblings, you're most likely going to get one that's overly compliant mm-hmm. and one that is oppositional. And they're both trying to avoid rejection and abandonment in their own mm-hmm. ways. So the overly compliant one is I'm not going to upset anyone and therefore I will avoid being abandoned yes. <laughs> and the oppositional is I'm going to push you away because you're going to abandon me eventually anyway. Right. So right, <laughs> make that happen. And the compliant uh, one then gets looked through because we're always focused on the one causing all of the, or not. Yeah. Just creating. The yeah. Chaos. So she's, she's, yeah. Did well in school. The teachers loved her. She would try to follow rules and make everyone happy, okay. but 
She never shared her feelings or what was really going on with her. She tried to join every activity possible to be very busy and not sit with And did she spend any time with her brother? She tried not to spend time with her brother. And he would, um, just like he tried to get a rise out of us 24-7, he tried to get a rise out of her 24-7. So the minute he would see her, it was like, mm. you know, a bee, a bee to the flower. Like I am going to try to annoy the heck out I of see. you. And so when they first moved in, they'd always kick and hit each other and stuff. And we finally put it into that, but they never got along okay. well. And um, so she would try to avoid him and he would try to annoy her. And that was kind of the merry-go-round of that. Uh, but she, we would have glimpses into her darkness. So she did have a suicide attempt in high school um, because she had crashed my car and not told us. So we weren't very happy right. about that. And so, you know, anytime you were unhappy with her, it was like, I want to drink bleach and die. Wow. Like I, I, if you're unhappy with me, life she is She can't over. tolerate. <laughs> yeah. Wow. 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 And so she, you know, it was interesting also in the primal wound, she talks about once. Once one kid leaves and you're all, you're left with the compliant kid, the compliant kid will sometimes start to then show. So after high school, she had a full ride to college and did that for two weeks and then texted me and was like, angrily told me she was moving out and she ended up going out to California to live with her birth parents. Really? So are these the birth parents that, Abuse the, the, drug yeah, the drug addicts. Okay. Not the aunt. Wow. So she was out there for six months. They were still drug addicts. They're, they're older. They're in their fifties and seventies. The mom's in her fifties. The dad's in his seventies. Okay. Still drug dealers, still drug addicts. She lived out there for six months. We barely heard from her. And then she came back a mess. I bet. Did she ever talk about what that experience was like for her? Not a lot, only that they hadn't changed. Mm-hmm. And, and she recognized and got out of there. So, wow. And had she, I mean, she knew the names of her birth parents knew about them, but had she ever tried to make contact or had they? Well, yeah, that's, we have so many parts to the story here, but yeah, our son, the minute he moved in was like, I want to find my birth parents. I want to know what's going on with my birth parents. I want to know if they're okay. Like I, he didn't remember them because he was two and she, she remembered only positive things, which is, yeah, that's how we cope our brains. And I felt like knowing him because they knew their names and where they lived and everything. I thought if I don't orchestrate this, he's going to do this at Mm -hmm. school. Right. So preemptively you're trying to, yeah. And at that point you're told that birth family contact is good and that that's always, always good. That's right. That's right. (laughs) So I found an aunt and a cousin who were in their case files saying they had wanted to keep in touch with them at one time and they hadn't really. So I thought I'll start with them. They seem like I kind of scoped out their Facebook pages. They seemed like they were doing okay. And I, I thought I would, I'll ask them if the birth parents have, if they're still addicts, if they're doing better, like try to scope out the situation before right. I reach out to the birth. So I did, but they immediately notified the birth parents uh, and things so, you don't think about. I mean, it might, you know hindsight but yeah I wouldn't think about that right taking it slow (laughs) so much for that (laughs) yeah so the birth parents were no longer together neither of them could barely write so like I wanted to start with emails or letters and like take it slow again but they really couldn't spell or like you know 
right okay. at all. Um, the birth mom tried to write emails. So we did do that a little bit. And then um, the birth father wouldn't even try to write emails. He just kept trying to, I'd given a, made up an email address and he just kept trying to call that email address. And I gave him the benefit of the doubt thinking, well, he just can't write. He's just not, you know, <laughs> and so um, we started doing video calls with the mom first. And it was interesting because she never said, sorry for what I did. She never said, I'm sorry. She said, I'm sorry. My sister abused you. Oh, okay. Zero accountability on her part. And she basically said, once I knew my sister had you, I stopped trying to work the program to get you back. Cause I figured, I figured she'd let me see you and it would be fine. Mm. And then she was just really obsessed with my daughter, like her looks, her makeup. Are you dating someone? It was like very focused on that. And then the birth father, he immediately told them, I will send you out each a car. I will send you diamonds. I will send you. And I'm like, they're not even old enough to drive at this point. I'm like, and that bizarre. He wanted to talk about himself or what he was going to get them. So it was bizarre. That must've been very weird. Yeah. And I took them out there to visit them at one point, but that's a whole nother story. So yeah, she didn't have know how to get a hold of them and have it go okay. out there. Okay. Wow. Okay. So she comes back and your son has rad. You've got therapy now. So when at right after the rad diagnosis, he went to the state mental hospital for six months. Oh, okay. So is that because of his evaluation? It was just he was completely out mm-hmm. of control. He was just, you know, everything was worse than it ever had been. He was he was running away from school. He was running away from home. It was just, and he, at that point, he didn't, he was so fed up with our rules that he thought going to the mental hospital would be better mm-hmm. <laughs> than staying at our home or, you know, uh-huh. local rad kid. I don't want to be with these people who are trying to attach. Right. To me, yeah. You know? Well, and what happened with our daughter and as common is, yeah, as soon as there's rules, I'm out of here. And she would go to the shelter. And then when things got there hard there, I want to come back home. And it was just this bouncing around to try and avoid it all. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And we had that too, because we have a crisis center here. And so, so he went to the mental hospital. It wasn't a great mental hospital. They weren't really rad or attachment, you know, but it gave us a break. Yes. That's I'm glad you say that too, because it's the same thing. You know, I was just talking to another rad mom the other day, kind of contemplating these things. And I gave her some resources uh, to consider, but, you know, she asked me, well, will, you know, if my child goes to an RTC, a residential treatment center, you know, did, did your daughter improve? And I felt so bad, but I had to say, no, no, because oftentimes, or at least the one that our child was at was not at all aware of rad. So she didn't get better, but just like you say, it gave us a break. And that was actually one of the best things. At the same time, we were kind of on this roller coaster of every three weeks, is she coming back? So it wasn't really relaxing, but it did start the trajectory for, you know, her path and helping our family. But yeah, sometimes doing it just because whether they get help or not so that you can get a break because chances of finding a rad informed place like that, uh, a facility that is going to be able to make that change, especially in the short amount of time they stay at RTCs, highly unlikely. 
but to be honest yeah. and okay with knowing you need a break. And if that's the way you have to get it, okay. They're safe. They're yeah. in a safe place. Yeah. And there are no rad specific places that his insurance will exactly. cover. Right. I mean, right. Yeah. So, and we're not rich. We're just regular sure. people. And at that time I had reached out to both the DFS in the adopting state and in our state and asked them for help. I said, he's completely out of control. We're in over our heads. Help. Mm-hmm. And you can guess how that turned out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wish I no. couldn't. Yeah, I know. We have no interest in helping you because you're, it's your kid. Right. It's your kid. Once you've signed the papers, it's your kid as if you had birthed mm-hmm. this child, even though this child has this whole host of problems they came with that are not right. yours. And, you know, if they truly cared about families staying successful, they would help you. There would be some kind of rec- mechanism by which they could say what services would help yeah. you. How could we yeah. What would have helped you? What do you wish would have happened in an ideal system? What, what would have helped your family? If they had funded rad specific treatment and yes, absolutely. And then I, right. Of course, looking back, if you want to go back to the beginning, they could have had complete records. They could have had him in treatment. They could have had correct diagnoses. Mm-hmm. And then I think, like I said, the parents need to be much better educated on attachment and they need to help you find attachment of four informed professionals in your area, get you set up as a family with those professionals. Like everything needs to be um, aided and then they need to give that family lifelong support. So it should never be a case of we're done with right. you. You adopt it. Right. You know, it should always be, how can we help your family succeed? Yeah. Because like I said, we didn't create these kids. We didn't create these problems. And if they, you know, for everyone's benefit, if they would help, that would be um, huge. So yeah, they, from the beginning, yes, that's what needs mm-hmm. to change. But if you're just saying, okay, everything was as it was at that point, I asked for help if they had said, you know, right. That's <laughs> and had a mechanism to help us. And that's not the individual social workers fault. Again, it's the system. Yeah. There is no system helping families once they've adopted. Exactly. And I think it's an old outdated system. But, and I, and the reason I ask is because you never know who's listening. And I think that everybody listening, if we can help facilitate that change and uh, maybe, you know, Maybe it can happen, but knowing what we need to do too, from a parent perspective is hugely important and valuable. So yeah. Okay. Thank you. Well, if you're listening to this podcast, you know how hard it is to raise a child or children with reactive attachment disorder, and you know, it takes a village. I want to tell you about two fundraisers happening that you can participate in and help make a difference in the world of reactive attachment disorder and help other families just like yours. The first fundraiser is called I Move for Change and it's happening at radadvocates.org through the months of September through November. It's really easy. Head to their website, radadvocates.org, register, start moving, and you will be raising money for this fantastic organization who is supporting families and professionals and communities working with children who have reactive attachment disorder. The second fundraiser is a project that I'm doing at Rad Talk with Tracy. Head over to radtalkwithtracy.com slash radswag. I've partnered with Inspired Wire, who is creating a very simple, classic, 
personalized hand-stamped bracelet that you can purchase online that is for you to wear to remember that you are strong and you are part of a bigger community. 75% of all proceeds, so 75% of each purchase, each bracelet goes directly to help Rad Advocates. You can help be part of the change. You can help make a difference. Head over to radadvocates.org, sign up for the I Move for Change fundraiser that's happening September through November, or head over to radtalkwithtracy.com slash radswag and purchase a bracelet for yourself or your entire family. So he, you know, he, he didn't, he didn't behave wonderfully while he was there. And right. That's not his MO, is it? Yeah. So he said, look, I can do whatever I want here. And eventually my insurance will run out and you will have to get me. And I said, you can choose not to work the program there. And I can choose not to come and get you. And he did work the program at that point. Interesting. So he took that seriously. <laughs> At that point, he did. So yeah, he, he worked the system. His sister was graduating high school. I wanted him to be able to see that. So, you know, he probably could have stayed there another month or two, but we did go get him, let him come home for the graduation. Um, and thought, you know, we, did, we didn't have high hopes that it had really worked, mm-hmm. but we, again, you know, wishful thinking, hoping. Yeah. So yeah, he came back. We we started wraparound as well, wraparound services, which really weren't helpful at all. It was run by like someone fresh out of college with a degree in nothing science, social worker psychology related. So pretty and, naive. <laughs> so, yeah, I was like, "What are your goals for the week?" And you know, he had no interest in making the family work. And describe wraparound services. So wraparound services. Um, often they will be covered by Medicaid, which kids adopted from foster care have Medicaid. Um, and it's basically, like I said, a young person who's assigned to like help coordinate everything. So basically they would do weekly meetings with everyone who was willing to come, whether that was your, you know, the child's teacher, uh, therapist, your family, and then come up with goals okay. for the week. And then you're supposed to, that's how okay. ours was anyway. Yeah. I think they're in charge of like coordinating services and connecting you with services. And we, I'm, you know, I'm handy enough. I could have already found all the services right. they could tell us about, but you know, we did it to say right. we've done it and to see, if sure. but it was, it wasn't helpful because, and I think that's the biggest thing I learned is that, you know, especially at his age by this point. So, you know, at this point he's, you know, um, in high school if the child has no interest in making the family work and no interest in changing, there is nothing you can There's do. There's nothing. And that's, you know, you, that's, I think, was the biggest realization. That's an aha moment, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because you're just like, I just going to keep trying all this and, you know, we're going to do all this. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if the, if the kid doesn't, if the kid wants to sabotage the family and does not want to change. It's not going to happen. You're SOL, you know, that's, yeah, yeah. especially at that age. There's did so, that moment, that aha moment for you, did that help you let go? For sure. Probably the most important right. thing yeah. um, is realizing that it's like, I, you know, it's just like, if, just like, if you were to start dating someone and think you can change them. No, if they don't. So if, 
he has to have some personal choice in that. And I think, um, I know you were at the Rad Advocates Conference that I was at and you heard the, you know, the success story. And it's like, he reached a point where he wanted to Exactly. And you know, all of the children, adults now, young adults that grew up with reactive attachment disorder that have worked through it. They're not a hundred percent recovered, but definitely not rad. And they've all said it's a choice. And I keep pointing this out because, you know, I think a lot of us rad parents have to hit rock bottom to get to that realization. You know, I always say rock bottom is a great place to start (laughs) and that's start over at least because it's, it does help us shift, let go, shift that mindset and stop focusing on the control and helping, helping, because it's just this vicious circle that takes us nowhere. So the sooner we can get there, or at least know that it's okay if you get there, or if it's okay, if you start thinking that before you hit rock bottom, because most often that day is probably going to come and it is very freeing. I've talked about that with other rad parents too, but it's very freeing. So that's why, yeah, I ask you to. It's yeah, yeah, a big life-changing moment. So he came back from the hospital and was just, uh, you know, angry. He was mm-hmm. an angry teenager, mm-hmm. you know, and we were, I was still hoping that we could muddle through till he was 18. Like that was as good as my hope Did you was. count down? Were you counting down? And I asked, cause we all count down, <laughs> right? Heck yeah. And so we were like, and I, we walked on eggshells. You know, it was just him in the home by that Ugh. point. I thought it wasn't just him in the home. We're just like, let's just try not to set him mm-hmm. off. Mm-hmm. Let's just try to muddle through yeah. until we're 18. Like, that was right. <laughs> all the hopes and dreams, they're, they're gone. gone. Let's just try to muddle through. Until right. We- you lower your standards, but you're still living in this tense household. Yeah. Well, there's no joy. There is no joy. You know, there was not any moment of joy in the day um, when we were together. So, you know, we're trying to muddle through. Fast forward to May of this year, we had this ridiculous argument. It was totally stupid. He completely blew up at us. We were hiding in our rooms, you know, just banging on the doors, yelling, glaring. I don't have to listen to anything you say. Who was hiding in the rooms? My husband Mm -hmm. and I. Um, it was Mother's Day, by uh, the way. So <laughs> good times. And um, you know, beating on the doors and all that, just complete craziness. And eventually got all dressed up in like his most gang wear look that he could put together and said, take me to the crisis center, which you know, you talked about your daughter going to the shelter. That's our version okay. of that here. So um went to the crisis center. And he'd gone to the crisis center many, many times, but in the past, usually he, within a day would want to come home Mm. because it used to be more regimented there and more stricter there, but it's kind of a free for all there at this point has different management. And, um, for whatever reason, he decided he was done with us after that. And so he went up to school, said, I'm never living with them again. I would rather go live in a group home or foster care or whatever. Mm. I'm done with that. I will not live with that. And we were also at our wits end by that mm-hmm. point. We're just like, we've tried everything. He doesn't want to change. And now he doesn't even want to live with us. He doesn't even want to be part of our family. You know, we gave him a while to see if he would come around. Sure. But, you know, you know, I think we've probably hit the end here because he doesn't even, he's refusing to even come yeah. home. And he's almost 16, bigger than me. 
you know, 200 pounds, like I'm not going to have a 200 pound, super angry, you know, almost man screaming at me in my face. When I was going to say, you just described you and your husband hiding in your bedroom because of pounding on the doors. I mean, we're already there, right? That's not, not okay. And my husband, you know, he was raised in a military family and it's like, it's hard for him to see my, this, like I said, 200 pound kid treating me like that and not doing, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, um, so we talked to a lawyer and, um, you know, we talked a lot of rad families do this and it's completely not ideal. And and going back, I would do a lot of things differently, but we talked to a lawyer. We're like, what happens if we don't pick him up from the crisis Mm -hmm. center? You know, because that's the only way to get DFS involved. Right. And there was a time and limit at the crisis center. Like, yeah. 30 day time 30 day. Okay. So what if we don't pick him up after those 30 days? He doesn't want to live with us anymore. He doesn't want to come home. You know, she said, you'll be charged civilly with child neglect. And we said, what are the repercussions for that? Like, could we go to jail? She said, no, you would only go to jail if the judge ordered something and you didn't do it. And then you're in contempt, then you could go to jail. But otherwise, no, it's a civil charge. It's private. It's closed, you know, and that would get, you know, DFS involved and see what services they could provide. And so by not picking up, it would flag a, a call to DFS. Because we had been, we would be ne- neglecting him because right. we weren't okay. picking him up. So, you know, at that point, we didn't feel like we had any other choices. She met with DFS. They opened a prevention case briefly. They came to our house. They said, have you tried therapy? Have you tried rap? Have you tried this? Have you tried that? And we're mm-hmm. like, yes, we've tried all those things. And he said, well, then there's nothing more we could offer you. And, you know, we explained how we didn't know the background when we adopted. And he said, well, my, you know, my coworker looked at what you wrote because I gave them kind of a summary and he's like, and she felt sorry mm-hmm. for you. You know, so at that point, it seems like DFS is um, understanding, but no. <laughs> anyway, really, really. <laughs> so, um, you know, we'll get mm-hmm. to that, <laughs> but anyway, so our lawyer had said, okay, so, you know, on this date, they'll probably charge you with the neglect. And I told them all accept the charge on your behalf. It's just a civil charge. Okay. So on June 9th, we were working from home. So I was actually in my pajamas and, um, four policemen come to our door and, I thought they, they probably confused and they probably didn't realize they're supposed to give her this civil charge. Right. So, you know, being law abiding citizens, we let them sure. in and they're like, tell us what's going on. And I told them they didn't read us our Miranda rights or anything. So, and this later we'll learn this was all in body cam. They're all taping us. So I'm like, how can you ask someone what's going on? Have them say everything. And then you're going to arrest them without ever reading them the Miranda rights, you know? But anyway, so then they're like, we're placing you under arrest what? for criminal, for criminal child abandonment. Wow. And wow. You're just like immediately sick. You know, I've never wow. been in trouble with the law in my life, yeah. you know, and just sick. So I said, can I call our lawyer? Can I change, put clothes on? You don't even know, you know what to I do. Said, yeah. Guys, they'll give me a minute. Um, I called her lawyer. She tried talking to them. They're like, no, it's a done deal. There's nothing that's going to change this. And when I came out from the bedroom from putting my clothes on, my husband, they'd already handcuffed my husband and taken him in one of the oh patrol my cars. Gosh. So they handcuffed me and they walked, they parked like two blocks down. So they're marching me in handcuffs. In your neighborhood. 
in our neighborhood. And then, um, you know, they put me in the back of the patrol car. I, it's, it was like over a hundred degrees in the back of that patrol car. Cause it was really hot out. And there you're in a plastic cage back there. And there's these three little holes. That's your only ventilation. And that you're in this tiny, tiny space. Like I could barely fit back there. I was like, how does a grown man fit back And did there? you have handcuffs on? Oh, had handcuffs on. So you're leaning forward, trying not to smash your hands, you know, wow. and hotter than hell. So they said, you know, we're going to arrest you, take you to the jail, book you. If you have enough money in your bank account, you can bail yourself out with using a debit card. So FYI, parents out there, keep some money in your checking account and keep your debit card with you when you're getting arrested. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, well, at least you can laugh now, but this is unreal. Yeah. So go in there and you know, they book us and your the cells are all around you. We both felt sick. So we both had to use the bathroom and they were like, the only choice was like a glass cell with everyone watching for you to use the bathroom. So I'm like, I'm just, yeah. holding it. I'm not going yeah. in. <laughs> so we um, go through all that, eventually get ourselves bailed out. And um, they give us the bond. They put a bond on us. And later we learned we never should have had a bond put on us because we're not flight risks. Mm-hmm. We're, we own a home. We work in the community where we have clean records. Like we're not a flight risk and nor our lawyer also told us we, they could have just said, meet us down at the jail. We're giving you the citation. Like they didn't need to come and handcuff us and like do all this, you know, it didn't need to be done that way. But um, anyhow, the bond conditions state that I cannot talk or see or live with my co-defendant who is my husband. That is nuts. Yeah. And we're like, we're married. We live in the same house, you know? And uh, they said, well, you can go try to get a judge to change it. So we meet our lawyer over at the courthouse to try to get the judge to change that. And he's out for two days. The judge is out. Seriously. So the the lawyer said, well, you don't want to violate this because then they can put Mm -hmm. you in jail. So my husband had to move out. I couldn't text him. Couldn't call him. We were having a plumbing emergency. Couldn't. You're not even allowed indirect communication. So no communication whatsoever. That was just horrible because here's your person who's been through this. Right. Just had this like most horrible experience and you can't talk to them about it or anything. Um, And our lawyer kept saying, I said to her, like, do you, are we going to go to jail? Like, are we going to go to jail? And she's like, yeah, you could go to jail for up to a year. But isn't this the same Um, lawyer that told you you weren't going to go to jail or get arrested and you got arrested? Yeah. And now she's like, well, I didn't think they were going to charge you with this. And, you know, he's like a couple months from being 16. If he was 16, we couldn't have been arrested for that. It turns out in our oh state. So, gosh. But she never told us any of that. And she kept saying, you could be arrested. You could be arrested. Um, so it was just like, I went home. I called my mom. I'm like, mom, if we get arrested, will you take my dogs while we're in jail? Oh like, Come to like, that. Yeah, I'm like, if we go to jail for a year, we take our dogs. And then we're like, yeah, you're going to lose your house. You're going to lose your jobs. Like, you're going to lose everything. And that's why, like, I would not advise anybody to go about this the way we did. I would say call Rad Advocates if you're at your wits end, see what your options are. And do not go with the first lawyer you I remember asking you, did you get a new lawyer? And you were like, oh, yeah. Read the reviews. Read the, you know really find a good lawyer. Don't. Yeah. This is not where you want the Walmart of lawyers. And go. Is there any recourse <laughs> for that situation with your lawyer? No, no, no. So, um, okay. wow. my husband was like, well, we should wait and see what happens. If, 
you know, but my cousin, I called my cousin who's a lawyer and she was like, I would give her a week to get this criminal thing dealt with. And if it's not, I would get a different lawyer. And so thank goodness we got, we did get a different lawyer, a better lawyer, um, a better lawyer. So she kept most of our, our retainer. She build the crap out of us for nothing yeah. and kept the most of our retainer. So we got a new, more expensive lawyer. Um, <laughs> After everything you've been through and then this, and now you're paying for it. So it took a couple months to get the criminal charge. Our, our new lawyer was eventually able to get the criminal charge dismissed but we had to plead no contest to the civil charge, mm-hmm. which means we're on the child abuse registry. Still? Forever, basically. Wow. I guess after he's 18, we can try to petition to get off it. So if we'd had other younger kids, this wouldn't have been an option. If we worked with kids, this wouldn't have been an option. He said we could have fought it because we did not neglect him. Um, he was at a safe place where he wanted mm-hmm. to be. Mm-hmm. And all we were trying to do was get help. And But it would have cost you know, 30,000 at least, and another year of this torture. And so, you know, DFS lied in their affidavit saying that we refused services, which all we did was say, yes, we've tried that. Yes, we've tried that. The crisis center lied saying his behavior was excellent there, which we knew from the school it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And then the hearing and our final hearing, they just made it sound like everything was our fault and that he's just perfect, which we knew that's not true. Cause we, you know, we had been seeing his, re, re, you know, power school grades and stuff still. And, you know, so do you think it's CYA, <laughs> everybody covering their ass? <laughs> I think it's a combination of that. And, you know, they're still on the honeymoon somewhat and their expectations are probably lower than ours. Like we did expect him to keep his grades up. We did expect, right, you know what I, I mean? Do. There would be and the more consequences yeah. or the more expectations, the more they fight. Oh, for that. sure. You know, um, I think their expectations are probably lower. They put him in a foster home with like 20 somethings. He's their first foster kid. So they probably, they're probably also giving him the benefit of the doubt because DFS told his teacher, do not tell them anything negative. So they're not being honest with this family. And just perpetuating the same situation. Exactly. So they're not being honest with them. Um, And, you know, also they're probably, you know, Brad is a reaction to people, close primary caregivers, people who are trying to attach to you. These people are are young. They have um, their own little young bio children. He hasn't been with them for long. So they're probably not trying to really attach to him at this point. It's probably, you know, so I think it's a combination of all those things. You know, I think they're trying to get this family to adopt him. And so it's just like the system failing Mm -hmm. again, Mm -hmm. because they are not being honest with this family. Yeah. And I know he's hanging out with the drug crowd now. And it's like this family, if they adopt him, you know, they may have a drug addict in their house with their little children. And it's like, so if a system's going to fail everyone once again, they're not giving him any attachment, specific treatment, which is what we had Mm -hmm. hoped. They're not, you know, Mm -hmm. so they didn't, it failed everybody. Yeah. And I think, you know, the larger systems are organizations we can lose sight and it gets so fragmented where, you know, the, the social worker is this one person or one cog in that wheel with such a specific job, unable to see 
the whole picture. So they've got their one job, their supervisor has another job. The workers that go into the homes and pull kids from the homes, uh, there, you know, everybody's just so focused on their one little piece that the big picture isn't even in view. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And no one seems to see that the fact that he wanted a family shop after six years in a loving home shows his attachment right. issues. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> they don't even want to see that. No, no. And I remember I say this often too, but what helped me kind of get in, what helped me get insight on this was when we were going through our adoption training, our foster adoption training, um, I remember being told that the minute that you're done, if you're a foster parent, not necessarily the foster to adopt, but if you're a foster parent in the state that we're in, it was so overloaded and so busy that within 15 minutes of finishing your training, you were going to get a phone call about a child. And so it's this huge backlog. And again, good intentions. Let's just get these kids to homes, but it's, it's a disaster. Despite the backlog, there has to be a better way. We can't just try and plop them in homes. That doesn't make it any better either. And in fact, it creates a whole slew of other problems. We need to get to the source and fix that so that everybody is okay. Right? Yes. Yep. That's a system now that fails everyone. Yeah. And I always wish that, you know, people in one position, you know, come spend time with a family and see what's going on or watch our videos from cameras in houses that some parents have or vice versa, or, you know, more of that communication and looking inside of, of what the other department is doing and what they face and what their goals are. You know, I remember having a friend who worked in the oil field and he, he wasn't in the oil field. He was in the office. And so there was the office people and there were the field people and the field people would always complain and get frustrated with things the office people were doing. And the office people would get real frustrated with what was happening out in the field until they brought the field people into the office for a tour and discussions and vice versa. The office people went to the field. Some of them do anyway, but not everybody. And boy, did that bridge a better understanding and compassion for each other. And when we see what all of our goals are together and all of our struggles, and we can understand that. And I think that this system, you know, the foster adoption system really needs to figure out a way to at least start there. Yes. Yes. Because as it is now, it's like everything's hunky dory when you're taking the kid off their hands, yeah. but if you need help, it's your fault right. and you're the enemy. And that's not productive not at all. for anyone. And just, you know, as a, as a organization, you would think there would be connections to resources for families, right? And again, starting there too, right? Let's start looking at what the resources are. Let's get honest with what's happening so that it can be a better transition and a better partnership between foster adoption agencies, you know? Yeah. 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 And there needs to be that understanding that um, all these kids have attachment issues on some, somewhere on the spectrum. Come on, of attachment right. Issues. Yes. Brad is one end of it. Somewhere on the mm-hmm. spectrum. They all do. 
And everyone needs to go into it with their eyes yes. open to that and with the resources in place. Exactly. For that. Because it became during our court stuff, it became this big thing of does he officially have rad? Where's the rad mm. diagnosis? Like this big thing. And it's like I said, they they've all got attachment yeah. issues. And you're not helping them by ignoring right. that. <laughs> and there's so much driving it. You know, these facilities have to meet standards or qualify kids based on insurance standards, uh, you know, so the insurance piece of it, I mean, it's a big animal, but unless we start somewhere, it's not going to change and this is going to keep happening. And so did you, you relinquished your son to the state? Can you talk a bit about that? Um, So, yeah, they, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's never been done before in our state and our state only allows conditional relinquishment, which means you're saying they can be adopted again. So, right. You're saying I relinquish my rights so they can. Be oh, adopted. I see. Okay. Um, so, you know, I guess the way our lawyer wrote it, he tried to make it so that it was as full of a relinquishment as our state will allow. Um, and that happened earlier this month. And, you know, it's just, um, uh, as, as, you know, as other families who've been through this can attest to, it's all the feelings. Right. It's all the feelings. It's you're, you're relieved, you're sad, you're, um, misunderstood, very misunderstood. I mean, the feeling when I left that courtroom, I thought I would feel some relief that, you know, Vindicated. but yeah. you're so, so misunderstood because it's just, you're the problem. You know what I mean? You're not understood at all. Um, so it's all the stages of grieving, but I, I will say, I didn't realize what survival mode we had been in these past six years until it was over. Yes. And then now coming back to life, mm-hmm. like I'm back to energy and, and wanting to do things and have my hobbies again and, and be with people and go places. <laughs> and that's when you realize, like, you don't even realize that you had been in that mode for so long. It's so true. And it doesn't happen overnight, that energy coming back. Well, nobody wants things to end that no. way. You know, no one, no. That. that's nobody's dream going into this. And, you know, we hoped that the state could then provide the help he needed and the resources he needed, yeah. but that's not. And your daughter is with you? Um, when she came back, we did not have her live with us because she did not, she, she had moved out wanting her independence and not wanting our rules. Yeah. And, um, has a lot of self-destructive behaviors. So we knew that that was not going to work for anyone to have her live with us. So I helped her find a job. I helped her find roommates. So she lives in our community. She has roommates. Um, She has a job, Um, but she still struggles because she's definitely one that just internalizes her problems and doesn't deal with them, doesn't share them, you know, so she struggles. And do you have contact with her? Like, do you get together and it's still, Oh yeah. So I, I talk, I get messages, text her Facebook messages from her daily. And we see her several times mm-hmm. a week and, you know, I'm her emergency call person. And, you know, I'm going to start mother daughter therapy with her because, you know, just reading all reading the primal wound and stuff. It's like, if she can't get our relationship, right. You know, if she can't learn to open up to me, yep. then, you know, there's not a lot of hope for her other relationships. Exactly. So, and she wants a relationship with me. She just doesn't know how mm. to have a healthy relationship. Well, that's a positive. Yeah. She doesn't know how to be reciprocal. She doesn't know how to share mm-hmm. her feelings, she doesn't know how to be open. But the fact that she's open and you can do this together, that's hopeful. 
So we're going to try that. Yeah, we're going to try that and see what um, happens. We get there. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no expectations anymore. Right? Do you find? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So how are you doing today? I mean, this has been years and years of unbelievable stress and chaos and trauma and sadness and grief and loss. I mean, that's been your life for all these years going in, not expecting any of that. Yeah. How are you? So we're just trying to pick up the pieces at this point. We're trying to, you know, get our health back. Mm -hmm. Our health has suffered, you know, get our life back fine. Start doing things we enjoy again. Mm -hmm. Start maybe planning you know, like I said, exercising, maybe fixing up the house, you know, maybe planning a vacation, mm-hmm. just trying to pick up the pieces and trying to do something positive with it. Mm-hmm. So I am trying you know, to, to really help educate other families mm-hmm. so that they can go in with a little more information and, um, you know, volunteering um, in our community, just trying to do something, something. Yeah, else. yeah. <laughs> That's so good. How do you feel about this? You know, you're on the child abuse list. Are you able to just let that go? Do you think you'll fight it? What What does that look like for you? You know, our lawyer said when he's 18, we could try to get off it and we'll try to yeah, get off good. it. Yeah, good. You know, and then in, in six months after the arrest, we can try to get the arrest expunged good. from our records. But isn't that just, I mean, this is the part that makes me so sad <laughs> yeah. is that even now you, you're, you've been through all of this, you, the family has paid for it, not, you know, in every sense of the word. And, and now for a system that failed and there's no accountability on that and no support or very little, and, you know, we end up seeking it out ourselves anyway, you might as well be a caseworker, but, and now your child's out of the house, you're through the worst, but you're still, you have these things lingering. So, you know, we talk about getting back to ourselves and whatever, but that's still in the background and stuff that you need to deal with. And that's why I asked. So I think it's unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, it epitomizes the failure of the system that we are, that the only recourse is to be treated as a criminal. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That you ask for help and your only option is to make yourself a criminal. Right. You know what I mean? That you're saying we're in over our heads, help us. Yeah. And they're like, no, we cannot help you yeah. unless you want to become a criminal. And then, <laughs> then we'll quote unquote help right. you. But didn't even end, he didn't end up turning out to get the help he needed anyway. But um yeah, it's, it's ridiculous because no one, no one, aside from not picking him up. And like I said, he was safe somewhere he wanted to be. Aside from not picking him up, no one has ever accused us of abuse or neglect. Even our own children. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like some red kids will make up false accusations. Ours never did. Our son told DFS, I feel safe with them. Like there was no false accusation. So it's like no one is saying we right. or could ever prove that we were. So it's just <laughs> unbelievable that this can even, this can even yeah. happen. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it is ridiculous. And, you know, just thinking about it and then we'll wrap up, but the the legal system, the foster adoptive system or department of child youth, family services, insurance, schools, parents, um, all of the support services, healthcare, it's, it's all wrapped in it. It's, um, it's a big system to change. Yeah. It really is. And at this point, 
you know, I think if, if adoption is not changed to where they can provide the supports these families need throughout the life of that adoption, then it, I would recommend people not adopt from foster care. I would recommend you just long-term foster so that you still have help. You still have a way out, <laughs> you know, I would have said guardianship, but I understand guardianship is just as binding in some States and some places, but don't sign that dotted line because you are not going to get help down the road and do not think that it's going to get better because it may only get worse. You can't change someone who doesn't want to change. You, not every child has reactive attachment disorder or these behaviors, but at the same time, in your case, you didn't think they did, right? And you weren't given all of the information. So here we think, oh, well, it might be okay if I just do a little more research, if I do some digging. But in your case, you couldn't count on that. And that's what's frightening is, you know, and, and in talking, you know, we all talk together, rad parents, and, and I often ask, would you adopt again? And, you know, most people say if they were given the supports, if they knew the child had reactive attachment disorder, and if there were services and if it was a team effort and we were supported, then absolutely, you know what you're going right. into. That right. call that you could say, well, over our heads, he needs this specific treatment and they would help you right. get that treatment. Right. And right. Absolutely. But that is not the case. That is not right. the case. The case is once you sign that dotted line, it is as if you birthed that child and they are not there to help you and you are on your own. Right. <laughs> so, so it is risky. And you can't go in thinking like I was thinking that you can fix this child mm -hmm. or that you can make things better. Or that you can trust might... who's advising you. You, it might only get worse. Yeah. So go in with your eyes open. That's yeah. what I would yeah. say. Yeah. Just there's so much to it. It's such a tricky situation with so many layers. But I'm so glad that, uh, you know, you shared this honest and real story. It's not pretty. Your ending isn't pretty. What happened to you isn't pretty. But, and it's not everybody's story, but it could be. And it might be somebody out there listening. Uh, your advice is really helpful for families going into this, or if they're partway through and in a situation like yours, helping them make better decisions or reaching out to supports that are out there. So I'm glad it's mostly over for you. I'm sorry this happened, but I'm glad that you're at a place where you and your husband can start getting your lives back. Thank you. Uh, yeah, your your you know your podcast is so important because it, it's just so helpful to hear other people are going through these things too, and to know you're not alone right. and you're not crazy. You're not alone. You're so. not crazy. That's the perfect ending. Well, thanks, Kayla. Thank you so so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I hope you'll be back to listen to future episodes. If you like the show, please subscribe and help me spread the word by clicking share and like. If you're a parent who needs more support, whether it's for you or your family, please check out my website at radtalkwithtracy.com and visit radadvocates.org.